You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. Well, so much news out of Washington yesterday. On the east side of First Street, the Supreme Court handed down a major gun decision. On the west side of First Street, the January 6th Select Committee uh, the, the hearings dropped major bombshells. And then south of the Capitol, at the Rayburn House office building, Federal Reserve Chair uh, Jerome Powell conceded the central bank underestimated the threat of inflation and that their aggressive interest rate hike could lead to higher unemployment levels. David Lynch is a global economics correspondent for The Washington Post, and he joins me now. David, welcome to First Look. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Chairman Powell testified yesterday that the Fed does not have, quote, precision tools when it comes to cooling down the economy. But talk about the balancing act they're engaged in, how trying to tamp down inflation could lead to recession. Uh, Powell says recession now is, quote, certainly a possibility. Yeah, that's that's very true. And, and it is a balancing act, probably a more delicate one under current circumstances than the Fed has faced in a very long time. The job before the central bank is to slow the, the economy enough to take the steam out of rising prices, to bring down the 8.5% inflation rate that's the highest in 40 years, but, slow, but not slow the economy so much that it sends unemployment soaring and puts the economy back into a recession. Remember, we just got out of one uh, in the wake of the pandemic uh, just about two years ago. So it is a very delicate uh, balancing act. And the, the problem uh, is especially acute this time because the Fed's principal tool to slow economic activity is raising interest rates. That affects the demand side, how much you and I go out and, and purchase, uh, how many goods and services we accumulate. But the Fed doesn't have many tools or really any tools that are useful on the supply side of the economy to create uh, more goods uh, and, and more services. And, and that's really the, the pinch here. Supply chain problems, uh, commodity price shocks from the war in Ukraine. And the Fed is, is a little bit powerless uh, against those forces. Okay, great. I'm glad you, um, Econ 101, demand versus supply. Let's take the, de the, the demand part here. By raising interest rates, the, the, the Fed is trying to basically make it harder for consumers, you know, car loans, um, credit card payments, and things like that. How quickly uh, will the 75 basis points um, rise in interest rates that they instituted earlier this month start to hit the American consumer? Well, it, it's a good question because there, there is always a lag with monetary policy, with, in, with what the Fed does, because the Fed influences interest rates indirectly. So it does take time for that to filter through the system. But what's interesting is that financial markets can move based on where they think the Fed is heading even before the Fed acts. And so you saw that in the mortgage market starting from late last year when uh, Chairman Powell said publicly or began saying that uh, the, the Fed had been a little bit slow in reacting to rising prices. And as it became clear that that, that meant a change in policy was imminent, financial markets moved. They didn't wait for the Fed. They started pricing up mortgage rates. Banks started charging more. And so you've seen already a very sharp rise 
Mortgage rates today are pressing 6%. Uh, a year ago, they were at half that. And that's already started to take uh, a lot of activity out of the housing market. And you'll start to see that filter through other interest rate sensitive sectors as well. As you mentioned, auto loans, credit card balances are going to get more expensive and business uh, borrowing, uh, whether through the bond market or through banks, commercial banks, that's becoming more expensive. That's another way that activity will slow. All right. So now let's talk about the supply side. And you sort of mentioned it briefly in a previous answer, and that's about supply chain issues. Chairman Powell uh, stated part of the goal of, of what the Fed is doing is to tamp down consumer spending and demand so that supply chains could catch up. But are supply chains still impacted from by the pandemic, by the COVID-19 pandemic, but also disruptions related to Russia's war in Ukraine. How much are those two, um, those two big issues playing into supply chain issues? Right. Well, you know, we've had these supply chain problems since the start of the pandemic. And, and the root of the problem was our consumption patterns shifted. We were all stuck at home. So the money that we would normally spend at restaurants or ball games concerts, et cetera, we weren't doing any of that. So we started buying more stuff on Amazon or Walmart or, or uh, wherever, uh, laptops, TVs, desks for the home, for the work from home environment, et cetera. That overwhelmed the supply chain. That led to our ports being clogged, railroads, trucking firms backed up. That has eased a little bit. It's still not back to pre-pandemic norms, but it's not as bad as it was a year ago. But as you say, the, the war in Ukraine has created a whole nother set of problems with its impact on energy markets, food markets, the price rises that you've seen uh, from that, that, you know, oil going, going up well above $100 a barrel. That filters through all sorts of products because that hits the cost of transportation. And so anything you buy that has to move from point A to point B, its price is affected by freight and transport. But these commodity price shocks, uh, are really becoming a problem on the, on the food and energy front. And, and that's the part of the inflation picture that the Fed can't do much about. And the risk is that the Fed will raise rates and affect the part of the economy it can affect. But the headline inflation number that we all react to, the 8.5%, won't come down enough to make it look like mission, mission accomplished for the Fed and it won't come down enough to ease uh, President Biden's political problems. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to take advantage of, of your title there that was just there a second ago, ago where it's a global, global economics correspondent. Can you talk about the fact, because I think you know, Americans are, can be very myopic and parochial. We're suffering from high inflation, uh, therefore everything is terrible. But the inflation, the high inflation we're seeing today is global. Countries around the world are also experiencing high inflation for them, right? Yeah, that, that's very true. I mean, every uh, you look at uh, Canada, the UK, the European Union, um, really the only exception is, is probably China, which is a different story. But any developed Western economy has got uh, the highest inflation it's seen in years. Now ours at, at various moments has been higher still and, and there are economists who will point to uh, what they would describe as excessive stimulus in the American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion plan that at the margin probably overdid it. Uh, because as you know, Biden administration officials were uh, quite forthcoming in saying from the start of this crisis, 
They didn't want to make the same mistake that the U.S. made in the wake of the 2008 crisis by trying to calibrate very, very specifically how much money the economy needed to fill the hole that had been punched in it. This time, the idea was, you know what, if we're going to make a mistake, let's err on the side of doing too much, not enough. And so this inflation, to the extent that ours is higher than uh, than elsewhere, is an example of be careful what you wish for. We have less than a minute left, David. Um, so the, the question, the last question is a simple one. Did the Fed wait too long to tap the brakes to raise interest yeah, rates? I, I think there's no question about that. I think Chairman Powell has, has acknowledged that because you remember the inflation started creeping up in April of last year. And I think there was a, a good intellectually defensible case at the time to say, these are special circumstances. This pandemic recovery is very unusual. So we'll get through this. The supply chain problems won't last forever. Uh, but you know, once it got into the fall and the problems were persisting and we still have them today, it is clear and financial markets have, have uh, rendered a verdict that the Fed did wait too long. David Lynch, global economics correspondent for the Washington Post. Thank you for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thanks. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Jennifer Rubin and Josh Rogan. Welcome back to First Look. Great to be back. Nice to be here. Okay. We got to talk about the big news out of all the big news happening in Washington um, yesterday, and that is the January 6th hearings. Um, I'll tell you what um, the most consequential thing I learned, and then you can react to that and then tell me what you think um, the most consequential thing you heard out of the hearing yesterday for me was finding out that multiple members of Congress, I think it's six of them, asked for pardons. Josh, you go first. Yeah, that was a big one. The one that struck me as a national security and foreign policy guy was the news that uh, Donald Trump had and Rudy Giuliani had asked Defense Secretary Chris Miller to check out a conspiracy theory that Italian satellites <laughs> had changed American votes somehow. And he actually did it. He actually called the defense attache in Rome and then called Italian officials asking them to verify Rudy's crazy conspiracy theories. It just shows that there was no institution in U.S. government that Trump and Rudy and Eastman weren't willing to corrupt. And, uh, you know, who knows what other parts of the U.S. government they uh, wrangled into their uh, corrupt schemes. And actually, Josh, since you brought it up, we actually have we've got the tape so people can hear nice. with their own ears what you're talking about. Let's let's play the Italian satellite conspiracy. Audio. Select committee confirmed that a call was actually placed by Secretary Miller to the attache in Italy to investigate the claim that Italian satellites were switching votes from Trump to Biden. This is one of the best examples of the lengths to which the pres President Trump would go to stay in power. Scouring the internet to support his conspiracy sh theories shown here, as he told Mr. Donahue in that December 27th call, quote, you guys may not be following the internet, the way I do. So, um, so that's the the visual and audio backup um, to what Josh was saying. Jennifer, uh, for you, the most consequential thing to come out of yesterday's hearing. I think it was that December 27 call where Trump is raising in sequence each one of these bonkers 
conspiracy theories. And one by one, the attorneys in the Justice Department shoot them down. And at some point, Rosen says, you know, we can't just snap our fingers and invalidate the election. And Trump in turn says, that's not what I want. Just say it's corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. That is the most brazen example we have to date, that he truly didn't believe or didn't care what the facts were. He just wanted to stay in power. And the persistent haranguing at the Justice Department, peppering them with one theory after another, repeating claims that had already been refuted, was quite remarkable and quite compelling. And I would say the second thing that really got my attention was, in essence, uh, Jeffrey Clark tried to bribe Jeff Rosen. He said, I will rescind my acceptance of the job to replace you if you just sign this. In other words, I'll give you something <laughs> of value, your job, if you just do this very illegal thing. So Jeff Clark is in a heap of trouble. Um, and we know that um, FBI agents went and raided his house yesterday in an exquisite bit of timing. Um, but it really is a compelling show of just how crazy, how extreme, um, and really how um, thoroughly delusional uh, the president was at this point. Yeah, um, I, I want to correct myself. It's five Republican members of the House who were actively pleading for, for, for pardons. That was revealed at the hearings yesterday. Uh, I want to play, some, play something else, which is sort of, I think, tangentially related to what you were talking about, Jennifer. And this is Richard Donahue um, <clears throat> talking about how he told then-President Trump, um, if you replace, if you make this guy uh, the attorney general, uh, here's what's going to happen. Play it. Mr. Donahue, did... Did you eventually tell the president that mass resignations would occur if he installed Mr. Clark and what the consequences would be? Yes. So this was in line with the president saying, what do I have to lose? Um, and um, along those lines, he said, so suppose I do this. So suppose I replace him, Jeff Rosen, with him, Jeff Clark. What would you do? And I said, Mr. President, I resign immediately. I'm not working one minute for this guy um, who I just declared was completely incompetent. And so um, the president immediately turned to, uh, to Mr. Engel and he said, Steve, you wouldn't resign, would you? And he said, absolutely, I would, Mr. President, you leave me no choice. And, and then I said, and we're not the only ones. No one cares if we resign. If Steve and I go, that's fine. It doesn't matter, but I'm telling you what's gonna happen. You're gonna lose your entire department leadership. Every single AAG will walk out on your now you're seeing that guy, uh, Mr. Donahue, in jacket and tie and, and and blazer. But when he's having this conversation with the president of the United States in the Oval Office, he's in muddy jeans and army t-shirt because he got a phone call that said, "Get to the White House. We have this meeting with the president." And so just imagine imagine him in a t-shirt in the Oval Office telling the president of the United States he's not working. For, for this guy. Josh, as the, um, the foreign policy guy here uh, at the roundtable today, just how is the world reacting to these hearings? Uh, I, I, I was thinking about the interview that Vice President Harris did at the Munich, uh, yeah, the Munich Security Conference, where the, the, the moderator asked her basically, is America back are we? Are, are you sure that 
Trump and those folks aren't coming back. Does this add to the alarm or or sort of dampen the alarm? Right. No, I mean, it, just looking at that clip, it tells you all you need to know about how the Trump administration was working. Every one of those emergency meetings to stop Trump from doing something crazy. And there were a lot of them on a regular basis, as we all know from covering that administration, ended up being a plea to Trump to uh, serve his personal interests, nothing to do with a discussion of what was good for the country, much less what was ethical or moral or legal or you know, within the rule of law. You know, It was very clear to everybody who worked for Trump that the only thing that mattered is was how it would come off for him. And that's the message that the world sees. They, it, it, it makes us look like hypocrites. It makes us, our entire system look like a joke. It makes us look like schmucks, uh, part, part of my friendship. And when I travel around the world, and I was in Europe last week, uh, Asia last week, and Europe the, uh, a couple of weeks before that, that's what they say. They say that uh, it undermines the American-led push for democracy, freedom, and human rights in a fundamental way and provides endless fodder uh, for the propaganda of our enemies who argue that democracy is too messy, that authoritarianism uh, is the best system, and that might makes right and strong men are better than elected leaders, okay? And of course, we knew that's what Trump thought. Uh, but the problem is when people like Vice President Harris uh, go around the world, and I was at the Munich Security Conference with her, and sort of preach that America is back when Joe Biden preaches aut autocracy, it's a, really a fight between democracy and autocracy. But then the administration doesn't follow through in key areas, as I argue that they're failing to do right now. Uh, that further undermines the message. It further shows the world that, you know, American preaching is not matched by, matched by American actions. And, you know, for most of the world, which is caught between the struggle of uh, democracies and autocracies, uh, it teaches them that, uh, you know, actually they don't need to heed our calls for improvement on all of these things. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a retrenchment of democracy around the world. Um, Jennifer, uh, at, at Tuesday's blockbuster January 6th hearing, there were big moments in, in that hearing. But I think the moment, the, the testimony from election worker Shea Moss, uh, who was targeted by, by the former president and his allies, really struck a nerve. Let's take a look at part of her testimony. Ms. Moss, how has this experience of being targeted by the former president and his allies affected your life? It's turned my life upside down. Um, I no longer give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I um, don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way. In every way, all because of lies. For me doing my job, same thing I've been doing forever. Jennifer, you wrote about um, Shea Moss's experience as it encapsulates a larger political culture uh, of violence that seems to be emerging. What's your reaction to her testimony and how should Attorney General Garland respond? I think that was such a 
absolutely poignant moment because the flip side of the bigger picture that Josh was talking about, which is what we look like to the rest of the world, is the human story, that these are not victimless crimes, that a fascistic regime can use the mob, can use violence, can use propaganda and lies to really make the lives of ordinary Americans miserable. And that there has to be some consequence or we're gonna get more and more and more of it. And I think I would hope that Merrick Garland, who is watching this and his attorneys are supposedly watching this, would come away with two conclusions, um, the big picture and the little picture. Going to Josh's point, unless we reaffirm the rule of law, unless these people are punished to the full extent of the law, the lesson to be learned both here and abroad will be democracy really is a joke. And secondly, if we let Trump and his cronies get away with this and we just punish the people who were on the mall who had been lured there um, by Trump and his uh, conspirators, then we are inviting more of this and more victims like Shea Moss. So I think the attorney general certainly has deep concerns. He doesn't want to make this a routine thing where we imprison the prior president. He wants to make sure if he's got a case, he's got it solid. But I would suggest that at the end of this week, we look back and we say the risk of doing nothing, of not prosecuting, is now incredibly high. And I would hope that the Justice Department would consider this as this picture of um, really a completely off the rails fascist regime um, using violence, using threats, using uh, lies um, comes to the fore and the world really is watching. And I hope the Justice Department understands the gravity um, of a decision that would be taken as really condoning and affirming Trump if they don't proceed. You know, Josh, to that point, uh, Jennifer's point, you know, the world is watching. I'm just wondering what... <laughs> What would we say about another country's democracy if a poll worker uh, in that country was treated uh, similarly um, to Shea Moss? Well, we, we, it happens all the time in, in autocracies all over the world, and sometimes we condemn it, sometimes we don't. Um, but, you know, I think what Democrats in the Biden administration tries to argue these days is that this process of accountability and transparency and the hearings and the public debate over what happened, that that is what makes America unique and great, that not that we're a perfect democracy, but that we're on the road to improvement and that we're willing to improve. That's certainly the argument that we make to Russia and China when they point out the fact that uh, we have big problems and big, big divisions in our society and in our government. Of course, they stoke those divisions, but that's besides the point. The problem with that argument, of course, is that when I talk to all of these uh, foreign diplomats and officials, they always ask me the same exact question, Jonathan, which is, well, is Trump going to come back or something like Trump going to come back in like two years time? Because then it's all bets are off. And I can't say that he won't. You know, there's a, 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 a non-zero chance that he will come back and be president again or somebody just like him. So, you know, it's not it's not it's not as if this process will fix it on its own. Uh, what we have to have a sustained commitment to the things that we believe in over successive administrations in both parties or this big project of sort of, uh, you know, um, pushing the world towards better things, individual liberty, the rule of law, democracy, freedom and human rights uh, will continue to stall. And you know what, Jennifer, I want you to uh, pick up, well, I'm picking up on something that Josh said, and I want you to um, continue this part of the conversation where he said, um, you know, Trump coming back 
or somebody like him. And, and for me, I've been arguing, Trump running in 2024 is not, is not the issue. It doesn't matter because even if he doesn't run, a Trump-like person could end up being the Republican nominee. Oh, I'm okay. thinking of, say, Governor Ron DeSantis, who in head-to-head -head matchups, is, is particularly in New Hampshire, now outpolls Donald Trump among, among Republicans who want to see a nominee in 2024. So isn't that the bigger issue here? It's, it's not so much Donald Trump as it is the, the, the negative forces he has unleashed and empowered to the point where, as the Post reported last week, more than 100 Republican primary winners are believers in the big lie. That is such a stunning statistic and really points to the um, catastrophe that could await us. Not only could a Trump or a Trump-like person run, but they could lose and then stage a another coup, stage another violent uprising. What we've seen is that the Republican Party has embraced this culture of lies and this culture of violence. How many times have we now seen congressmen with ads of them shooting something or other? Sure. Um, how many times you know, do we have to see an ad like we saw from the um, Republican Senate candidate, uh, Rick Gretians, um, who basically shows him breaking into someone's house and saying, I'm going rhino hunting, meaning he's going to go hunt uh, and presumably kill uh, Republicans who aren't on board with his extremism. So it's the culture of violence, the contempt for democracy that has now soaked in to not only the Republican Party, but tens of millions of Americans. And that is a fundamental problem that we're going to have to grapple with, I think, for years to come. Um, what do we do when half the country is exposed day after day to the lies of right-wing media, in particular Fox uh, News, that perpetuates these lies and encourages anger and rage and resentment, um, which then spills out into violence? So we have some very big problems ahead. And it's one reason why I think um, it's essential not only to prosecute these people, but it's essential for people like Liz Cheney, people like Adam Kinzinger to step forward and say, we have another path. Look, we don't have to follow Trump and his cronies. We could follow the Rusty Bowers. We could follow um, the Richard Donahues, the Republicans who did the right thing, who respected the rule of law. Right now, they're not making much headway. They are in a distinct minority in the Republican Party. And as I sit here today, I'm not at all optimistic that the Republican Party is going to recover its bearings in the near future. Mm. Uh, unless the American people hand them defeat after defeat, this is going to go on for a long time. And we're going to live with this risk of violence, this risk of anarchy and of totalitarian temptation um, for really years to come. Totalitarian temptation. I like the I, I like the alliteration, not so much the implications. Uh, Josh, last question to you, and it's not January six related. It's about China. Um, observers often make the comparison of Ukraine and Russia with China and Taiwan. You've written extensively about China, its ambitions and strategy, and you wrote recently that China's military expansion is reaching a dangerous tipping point. In the two minutes we have left, explain. Right. Well, this sort of ties into everything that we were talking about in the sense that, 
you know, around the world, each of these countries, uh, a lot of countries and continents are going through the same struggle between the fundamental choice over whether or not uh, society should be organized around the rights of an individual or whether the party state and its army controls everything in your life. And what we see in Ukraine and Russia is that actually when people get to live in freedom and democracy, uh, they like it. They prefer it. They don't want to go back to living on their knees. They're willing to fight and die to prevent an, uh, a dictator from taking over their lives and making their lives worse. And that is the similarity with Taiwan. The Taiwanese people have never been ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. They don't want to be ruled. And it's pretty clear from my last trip to Asia that Beijing is going to attack them if and when they get that mm. capability. As soon as they're, they're not ready yet, but they're building a, a multi-level economic, military, diplomatic, financial scheme to make it easy for them to attack Taiwan and to, to destroy that country. And I said country, yes, I meant that. And to make it uh, another province of China, just like much worse than they did in Hong Kong. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And if you listen to President Biden, he says we're going to intervene. And if you listen to the White House, they say maybe not. And that kind of ambiguity, which has served to uh, keep the peace is now threatening the peace in my view. And, you know, I asked President Zelensky personally uh, over video chat while I was in Asia last week, what he thought about this. And he said very clearly that we have to help small countries resist authoritarian aggression before they get attacked, not after they get attacked. That's the lesson that President Zelensky wants us to take away from Ukraine and apply it to Taiwan. And we're not doing that. So, you know, what I try to do in my columns after speaking to a lot of people in the region is to sound an alarm because uh, once the uh, Chinese Communist Party has the uh, capability, they're going to combine it with the intent that they already have. And the costs of uh, intervening then will be much higher than they would be now. Or we can just throw up our arms and let uh, authoritarianism expand. But as we found in the last century, uh, that ends up being a pennywise pound foolish effort because eventually uh, the bad guys will come knocking on our door. Josh Rogan with the smelling salts uh, for, for democracy this, this Friday morning. Jennifer Rubin, Josh Rogan, as always, we got to go just when the conversation is getting good. Thanks for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.